Landry Fleming. And I'm Drew Johnson. And you're listening to Circle Up, a podcast series brought to you by Jackalope Theatre Company. Jackalope, in collaboration with the Chicago Inclusion Project, has developed Circle Up, a collection of new play readings that is dedicated to amplifying stories that are diverse in scope, as well as providing a safe harbor for evolving work. We interview Circle Up's playwrights about their lives, their plays, and their process, while including clips from the play reading itself. We're here interviewing playwright Rachel Lynette, who wrote Good Bad People, a play that deals with the murder of an unarmed black man, Amiri Johnson, by the police, and how Amiri's family copes in the aftermath. All right, let's get to our conversation with Rachel. Where are you from? I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, and right now I'm living in Fayetteville, Arkansas, so it's kind of, I've been there I say that like my adult life has all been in Fayetteville, Arkansas, so it's kind of hard to be like, I'm from L.A., but I haven't been there since I was like a child. Right. Um, so it's kind of weird, but I guess I'm, I'm from L.A. and Arkansas now. Okay. strange to claim that. So yeah. how, how long have you been in Arkansas? Six years. Six years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to, we got to get it out in the open. You have to. That we went to the same graduate program. Yeah, we did. University of Arkansas. <laughs> In fact, you moved into the room next to mine in the house that I lived in for three years, probably within like a couple of months of me moving out, which is crazy. It's insane. So now, okay, so you're from LA, which is a pretty large, very well-known city, but is there anything unique or interesting or weird about LA that you don't think is common knowledge? Yeah, there's like 20 LA's. Most people, when they think of L.A., they think of, like, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That's it. And Hollywood's, like, five blocks. Yeah. Um, like, the L.A. that I'm from, like, I've got a lot of friends from grad school who are like, I'm going to move to L.A. And it's like, okay, you're moving to Echo Park. That's where you're <laughs> You're not moving to L.A. Like, there's no way you're moving on Crenshaw. So there's a lot of different um, L.A.'s. And that's something that I think the play kind of addresses, too. Like, there's a line right in the beginning of the play of, like, oh, what neighborhood do you live in? And mm-hmm. they have their own nice neighborhoods. They don't have to be in our nice neighborhoods. So it's actually really... LA is a really interesting place in that it's segregated a lot more than I think people realize, but it's also just very like you claim your city. Like when I say I'm from LA to other LA people, they're like, yeah, but where? So I'm like, oh, I'm from Culver. And then they're like, oh, and then they make decisions based on me. But um, since my parents are divorced, sometimes I'll like, depending on who I'm talking to, like if I want like street cred or something, I'll be like, yeah, I'm from like Downey. And they'll be like, oh, because <laughs> um, I'm from both. Like I grew up right. in a really, like I went back and forth between two very different LAs, but both of them I'd write LA on my postage. Okay. So. What led you to playwriting? Oh, boy. Um, let's see. Well, I started off as a stage manager, which is why I was in Arkansas. Um, and I, to be honest, I got tired of working on plays that were, like, all white, mostly men, about, like, kind of like this play about a funeral. Somebody died. And, like, the biggest dramatical thing was, like, somebody cheated on somebody. Right. And I just got tired of that kind of like that over and over and over again. Like uh, there's like that meme that goes around where it's like theater's all about like how white people deal with different kinds of problems. <laughs> and I just didn't want that. And I was like, well, what if I, I was an actor and I at first before I was a stage manager and I was just told that I wasn't even though I was a good actor for a black actor, I wasn't good enough and that I would only get cast as a maid because I wasn't like you have to be twice as good. And I didn't like that. Um, and then I went to stage management and then I got even more frustrated. And so I was just like, all right, I'm going to write one then. And then that kind of just fell down the rabbit hole after that. Yeah. I've found that a lot of the female playwrights that I really love, um, often come to playwriting from similar, for similar reasons. Like there weren't good roles for them or there weren't opportunities for them. And then they're like, well, I'll just write them. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to make that, that 
little corner of the the world for myself. Yeah, and I love that. So you're a teaching artist as well, mm-hmm. yes? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and how does working as a teaching artist inform your playwriting? Does it? So much. Oh my goodness. So um, when I first start when I when I first start working with Trike Theater in Arkansas, that's how I got there. Uh, just seeing how they talked about things that like we talked about in school, things like voice and movement. And how you like used your kinetics and stuff that really just seeing that with children and seeing how engaged they got being like, why isn't this an adult theater? And so like you'll see like in my plays, there's a lot of which is an interesting problem in a reading. There's a lot of movement in my plays. People are just constantly moving. They're constantly doing things. There's a lot of action because of that kinetic energy that I think comes. And as an actor, I think there's nothing better than like having an object that you can feel like I might throw it. I might not. (laughs) I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I've got a thing. Um, so that came from that. And also just really listen, learning how to listen with kids. You really have to learn, I think, how to listen about a bazillion times more than you would with adults. Like you can kind of just kind of get the gist of something with an adult and not really ever listen to them. And so I think it improved my dialogue too. um, working with different kinds because I've worked with kids from age four to age 18. And for the last like four summers, I've taught theater to high school kids over the summer. Oh, wow. And I we write plays every summer, and their plays are so – they're outlandish, but they're fun. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it really makes you try things in theater that I think we're scared to try, especially since I'm I'm a realistic-ish writer. But then, like, it'll be like, I'm going to try something weird. And it it's because I feel challenged by the kids to keep using my imagination, to keep, like, using that part of my brain and not getting stuck with, this has to be a house. Um, so – you actually mentioned this last night during, um, for the listeners, I am also reading the stage directions for her play, but you were talking to the actors and you mentioned how you don't like and don't use the word beat mm-hmm. because it never resonated with you. Mm-hmm. And you saying that really resonated with me because I, 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 it also never clicked. I loved that you were like, so I, I chose a different word mm-hmm. to describe what I want. Yeah. yeah, um, I hate it. I've always hated it. It was like I, I came to theater really late. Like I didn't become a theater major until junior year of college. And by the time I was there, they were already like, Beats, we all get it. And I was like, the F is that? <laughs> and um and so I would read all these plays and I'd see beat and as an so like as an actor in acting class, I'd be like, What does this mean? They're like, It's a pause. And I was like, Why doesn't it just say pause? <laughs> right. And then I would pause and I'd be like, Well, you're pausing too long. And it's like, Well, how long is it? <laughs> <laughs> so mad (laughs) and um, and then when I got to grad school with Bob and he'd be like well that's a beat I was like I don't understand and he'd be like it's a beat shift and I was like why isn't it just called a shift yes um so what I did in my plays is you know and um what I write is moment and shift and I've differentiated them Mm. where moment is what I so what I've learned is that with the dialogue that I write I write almost like a chess game. That's kind of what I wrote in the play is that it's these two really smart people going at a speed chess game with their dialogue and they're just, it's just exchange, exchange, exchange. And so moment to me is a reassessment. It's a step back. It doesn't have to be a pause, but it's, it's a moment where you, you know, it's like you're reanalyzing the board. You're seeing what the pieces are. Shift is just something weird's about to happen. Someone's about to make a play that's unexpected. And so it's not a pause, but it gives the actors a little bit, because I do that in my writing, where lines kind of come out of nowhere, and to give the actors a heads up, like, hey, it's about to get weird. Mm. (laughs) Um, And to me, that works way better than beat, because I still don't know what beat means. I don't really either. And your words are so much more descriptive (laughs) of what 
that you know yeah. needs to happen mm. in the dialogue. Yeah, I I absolutely love it. So I want to talk about Northwest Arkansas and okay. Fayetteville in particular, which is kind of this um, this strange, like almost solitary blue dot in a mm-hmm. very red state. Yes. Um, the, it's a, I mean, as we've found out in the last five minutes, it's a very arts focused community. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like equal parts like southern college football town and like a little bit midwestern and a little mountain and a little like leftover hippie communes and <laughs> a little bit like business coming in for Walmart international headquarters that's in the next town over. It's it's very it's it's very strange. Um but how how has living in that like kind of arts focused very strange community how has that influenced your work, especially coming from Los Angeles, which is a mm-hmm. very different place than mm-hmm. Fayetteville, Arkansas? Well, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's been interesting. It's uh, So I wrote my play, Well-Intentioned White People, because I was in Arkansas yeah. and in Fayetteville, because it's this very, very, like you were saying, it's this very liberal, hippie, free-flow town in this very red state. And so it's kind of funny to me like how things like racism – and homophobia are addressed in this really liberal town. Like I was telling someone a story um, about traveling and going on this long road trip and something racist happened and I was like laughing about it. And she, she's white, and she heard me and she's like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. And she got so angry, like she was red. She was like throwing it. She needed to be, I needed to calm her down (laughs) because of how upset she was. And so it's funny, like these, so living in Fayetteville has really informed my playwriting in like a, uh, oh, because like I, when I think when most people think of the South, they just think of like blatantly racist people. Right. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And that's just not especially Fayetteville. That's just not what's there. And um, so it's really changed the way that I see people. I know that I had this horrible joke when I found out that I was moving to Arkansas. I was like, oh, they're going to murder me. <laughs> I'm going to die. Yeah. Like I'm black and I'm queer. They will kill me. <laughs> um, so and then I got there and it was like, we love everybody. Right. Rainbows. Yeah. And I was like, what the? Where am I? <laughs> um, and it was very surreal, and it was, and I felt very welcoming. And it's funny how, like, even in these really welcoming places, there's that undercurrent that's still there, mm-hmm. and there's like things people are still learning, and in a weird, like, aggressively positive way. Mm-hmm. Like when I first <laughs> moved to Bentonville, what I know, like before, like in LA, it was like I was being followed because someone thought I was shoplifting. In Bentonville, I'm being followed because everyone wants to make sure that they know, that I know, that they're not racist. <laughs> like, it's like, I have to say hello to you and ask you how you're doing and offer you free things. And it's like, guys, like, it's okay. <laughs> Just don't follow right, me. Like, right. that's the solution. That's it. And it doesn't take long to get outside of that no. little bubble, too. It's, I mean, right. really, it, like, just a few minutes down the road and it's like, oh, no, this is not where right. I was before. Right. Um, and th- there's something I always found very interesting about that that thin little line there mm-hmm. and kind of the the conflict therein, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah, with um, with Trike, what's really cool is I got to tour the state of Arkansas. And so when I, but luckily I was in Fayetteville first. Mm-hmm. So I think if I had just jumped on tour, I would have had a very different idea of Arkansas. Because you're right, like once you leave that three city area and you go to the other places, you're like, Oh, this is this is the South that I thought that I expected. Yeah, yeah. Um, but even then, still, like it's funny. Like Harrison in Arkansas has got this horrible reputation of being. Right. Harrison's been very aggressively like they're like the 
the mayor and the people have been like, no, we're kicking those people out. Yeah. Because they're losing money. Sure. Which is really interesting. Like Johnson, Arkansas, same thing. The cops got in trouble. Well, police, my bad. Um, <laughs> got in trouble <laughs> for um, for co- like pulling over black people so much that like they ha- issued a public apology. Like it's really interesting how like things mm. are trickling down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's still, I mean, my husband's from Helena and Helena's not great. Um, Helena's really close to Memphis and it's in Southern Arkansas and it's poor and divided still pretty. I mean, it's very divided and like yeah. the black poor town's just like abandoned. Mm-hmm. So I do find that, and we'll talk about it more once we get into the meat of the play, but I do find it really interesting, like kind of the state of, of um, progressive racism right now we're trying to not be racist Mm -hmm. right this Mm -hmm. like like you're saying it's that trickle down and of course um you know and we'll talk about this later but both drew and i are white interviewing a black woman (laughs) you too earlier yes this is mostly for your (laughs) (laughs) i should have told you i'm so should have told you first. And and for the listeners' benefit, we are all recording this in separate booths. We yes, can't see yes. each other. So. Cannot see each other. We've got yeah. blindfolds yeah. on as well, just to be <laughs> just, safe. Just in case. <laughs> just just in case. Well, speaking of well-intentioned white people, here's our first clip from the reading. Lucy, a white reporter desperately trying to write a positive profile on Amiri, the young, unarmed black man who was shot by police, has visited the Johnson home in the hopes of getting a quote from the family. June, the eldest of the Johnson sisters, who has not returned home in years until the tragedy, allows Lucy to come inside, but isn't exactly helpful on the quote front. Let's listen. Your mother, is she here? Don't know. You don't know? I mean, I assume she is. I haven't seen her. And that doesn't concern you? (coughs) Should it? I'd want to be close to my grieving mother. You wouldn't if your mother is anything like mine. (laughs) So your mother's missing and Audra isn't here. I didn't say she was missing. So she is here. Seriously, why the radio silence? (laughs) I'm not being silent. I'm literally talking to you right now. June, could I just... I just want to ask your mother two questions, just two. I can write them down and you can email me the answers. I don't even have to see her. Not gonna happen. Why not? Aren't you infuriated? I can balance multiple emotions at once. They are crucifying your brother on the news. How biblical. Catholic? Jewish. Right. Why does that... At some point, your mother is going to need to speak up if she wants any kind of justice for her son. I mean, seriously, a house full of lawyers and not one of you wants to... I'm not a lawyer. I've researched you, June. I'm a translator. A legal one. You have a JD from the University of Michigan. I know where I went to school. You know, I thought it was weird you went to Michigan. What? Your mom went to Yale, but then moved back. Your sister went to Berkeley, and somehow you just went to Michigan. I'm older, technically. It goes, my mom went to Yale, I went to Michigan, and then Audra went to Berkeley. The order sort of matters. And yet you're all somehow too, what, busy to deal with what's happening? Or too smart. What? Mom teaches constitutional law at UCLA. You think she doesn't know what she's doing? What she's doing is getting a guilty, letting a guilty man get away with murder. He was going to get away with it anyway. The officer was suspended. With pay. If, if your family, your mother, would just testify, then maybe... Then maybe literally nothing would change. Well, there's literally only one way to find out. Drink. <laughs> what? Do you want a drink? It's not even ten. My brother just died. 
Don't make me drink alone. <laughs> One of the things that really struck me um, that you do so well is that you take this very deeply sobering topic, right, of violence against people of color, um, and then you also simultaneously make the play really funny. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really funny. So can you talk a bit more about that dichotomy to us and, and why is why is that there? Yeah, Um. because that's me. Yep. That's why it's there. Um. That's just who I've always been. Um. Like I, like I said earlier, like I made a joke of someone being racist towards me. Like I just, I think that that's how I, that's a coping mechanism maybe. I think it's something that a lot of people of color have just learned. You either get really pissed or you write a bunch of jokes and you go do stand up. Like mm-hmm. that's that's the only two options. Um, <laughs> so I think for me anyway, like I've always been, I I, I make inappropriate jokes constantly. Um, I'm kind of known for that in my family, and so I can't. If you look at a tragedy, I can't just cry about it, and I can't just. It's horrible that it's happening. We know that it's happening, but also. To be honest, I've learned that when you add humor into a play and when you kind of invite your audience in and you're not just yelling at them, because that's an option. It's definitely an option. But when you invite, they hear you more Mm -hmm. and they want to talk about it more. And so I've learned that in my plays, when I include this element of humor, people feel more comfortable. And I know it's not about making like other people comfortable, but if I, to me, why I write is to start a conversation. So Mm -hmm. if you're writing just to like say, this is fucked up, this is happening, then you don't need that. But I want to start conversations. To me, that's what's most important because I think conversations is then what gets you thinking about it later. And um, if you can get people to laugh at themselves, even like, like I feel like the play even makes like black people laugh at themselves. Like there's a lot of really just lovely moments for any identity, you know, like, and, and I think that if you can do that, then you can take a minute to go, oh, but wait, why am I laughing at yeah. myself? Yes. And it create something in your brain you know and that's my whole thing is that like I said once that I want my plays to feel like a bubble bath that you can't wash off that it's just like stuck on you and you think keep thinking about it and I think part of the laughter is after you're done laughing it's but wait what's this residue what's still stuck on me and I think that's why I write that way I've seen a lot of like Brecht right like for all of us theater nerds out Mm. there Brecht is very like get your shit together. Right. And the ending's very like, mic drop, what are you going to do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like, especially now with people not listening to each other, that's not going to work in our yeah. modern era. I don't know that it really worked for Brecht. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually wrote a whole paper about how even Brecht didn't listen to Brecht. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> he didn't. That's <laughs> I get, amazing. I get super emotionally engaged in Mother Courage. Um, <laughs> so, it, like, I think that that's part of it is that like, we're already not listening to each other. We yeah. don't need to add to that. And I think yeah. when you just start yelling at someone they're like no mm-hmm. but if you can be like hey our mom's smoking weed now they're gonna be like right. what yes. <laughs> so your play revolves around the murder of an unarmed black man by the police uh, which happens before the life of the play begins mm-hmm. and the play focuses on the young man's family and each of their responses to that murder and so while this may seem like an obvious question given our country's history of violence against people of color along with the media finally covering said violence in recent years, what drove you to write this specific play? Yeah, um, so it's funny because I keep talking about well-intentioned white people, but to me they're connected, and I will die with that ship that they are the they are a cycle. <laughs> um, they're not. I'm trying really hard to make them. Um, so for me, and I kind of talked about this last night, um, that well-intentioned white people – was all about like I was working at I was working in academia and I was learning what it was like to be not straight and not white in an academic setting 
and having people always wanting to talk about that. And so then I wrote about, so what well-intentioned white people to me is what it means to be a queer person of color in public. And so naturally I was just like, I wonder what it's like to be in private. What does it mean to be a queer person of color in private? And what's a tragedy that you could deal with that forces you to kind of almost, cause you're not in public in your own home, but you're, I mean, in private, you're not in private in your own home, but you're still around people where it should be home. And like, what does that mean? Even when you're in the safe space, you know, um, <laughs> but the safe place that doesn't exist, you know, like where is a safe place for a queer person of color? And that's where it started. And when I realized it was a black family that I was writing about um, and that it was all women, I, I was like, okay, well, what's something that they could deal with that would force this woman, June, back home? And I was like, oh, and then, then the news cycle. I mean, yeah. and for a whole week, that's all that was on the news. It was like a different person every day. And I just was like, I can't, I don't know why I haven't written about this yet. I have to. I, it was something was compelling me to. And that's why it ended up being about a police shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it started in this place of like, oh, what's the, what's the private struggle? What's the private struggle? And then after seeing the news cycle, kind of those two thoughts blended together. Yeah, and to touch on something that you were just talking about as well, um, the play requires a fully female-identifying cast, um, which I personally love because I identify as female. (laughs) Um, Was that intentional? Did you set out to do it that way? Uh, Yes. So there's this horrible joke that I have of, like, you have to search for a man in my shows, my plays. (laughs) They're just not there. There, I shouldn't say men. There's not a cis man in a play of mine that I can think of since my thesis show. and he's not straight. So there's no, and it's, it comes from that frustration of like, I don't want to see any more cis straight people. No offense. I don't, <laughs> I don't want that anymore. Um, and so, yeah, most of my plays are heavily, they're all, they're all mostly women. And if there is a man, he's trans because it's just, we need to start creating roles for these people. Yeah. And it's unfair that like, and we need to stop, sorry, real quick rant. We need to stop casting these freaking yes they're beautiful men but stop casting them as trans women yes let a trans woman play a trans woman yeah. mm-hmm. and so that's it's from that anger it's from seeing that and that's why my casts are in that way i made the i knew all along we'd never see a more amiri i knew all along we'd never see the dad that's been a real fun struggle to edit around because like why wouldn't you see a dad at a funeral yes. um but i was like nope he can't be in it oh well oh i don't care if people have questions he's gone <laughs> he left um and it, it's been, and I think that's kind of almost what people are now drawn to a little bit in my work is that it is mostly women. I mean, my play before this one, Abortion Road Trip, is all about a, a woman, a young woman trying to decide she wants to get an abortion. And her boyfriend exists in the world of the play, but he's not on stage. Mm-hmm. And people were like, what? <laughs> An abortion play without a man? <laughs> what? So I just, I, that's just something that I've been very passionate about is we need to create roles for women. We need to create roles for women of color and we need to create roles for queer people. And I'm going to keep every, I'm just going to keep writing my plays until it's just like, oh, whoa, we're too many queer people on stage. <laughs> then I'll write an all cis white male play. Maybe. Go. I don't know. Maybe. I'll probably retire. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. What a way to go. Finally go to law school. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, Audra, you know, so she, um, I mean, they're all such beautiful characters, but so she's, you know, engaged to a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, and she talks about two different instances where she shakes the hands of police officers. Um, one who's wrongfully detained her and her father. Another time the police officer who shot her brother. Mm-hmm. Um, 
can you talk a little bit about that internal conflict? Is is it a conscious one? Is it a subconscious one? You know, what what is she experiencing in those moments? I think it's a conscious one, but I think it's one where Okay, so let me take some steps back. Mm-hmm. I was like one life decision away from being Audra. Like I was like, I want to be married to a politician. I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Notre Dame. Like we, I mm-hmm. went to Notre Dame. I like was like I'm gonna study the classics and anthropology. I'm gonna groom myself. <laughs> I'm gonna be brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I was like still attractive then. And so I was like, <laughs> I'm gonna get a politician. She's still a beautiful, woman, uh, <laughs> but it's, her brain is more important. Anyway. <laughs> but um, and I think that when you go on that path, and there were a lot of it was really interesting how many women at Notre Dame. We're like, I'm here. You'd be surprised. I'm here to find a husband. I am here to find a doctor. I'm here to find a lawyer. I'm here to find an engineer. This is something that, that they would. Yes, they would we would talk voice. about it in wow. our dorm room. Wow, yeah. like multiple girls. Like we'd be like, we'd ask guys, like, so what's your major? Like, and we didn't mean it like I'm genuinely <laughs> curious. It was like I want to know what I'm investing my life in. <laughs> um, and so it was a thing. And I think that. That was something I even did. Like, it wasn't conscious completely. Like, I'd only dated engineers in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was my brain going, you got to be with money. You got to prepare yeah. yourself. And I think that Audra knows that, yes, there's these police officers and these things that she has to do. But it's that conscious decision of to get this mythical better life. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what it's all about. And I think it's it's a conscious sacrifice. And I think that the reason why I put that story with the cop with the police officer um, earlier Please on. feel free to call him a cop. <laughs> well, I mean, I have family members that are police officers. I feel like if they read any of my work, they'd be like, what's up? Um, <laughs> so, I, but I think that moment is was really pivotal for her. It was a moment where she realized that she was always going to be black no matter what. So she had to armor herself with this protection. And the only way to get that protection to her was to mayor, to marry, mayor, to marry the president. Like mm-hmm. she was like, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to marry this guy who's going to be mayor because I believe he's going to be mayor. And I'm going to make him mayor because she does. She writes all of this material. Mm-hmm. And then I'm going to make him president. And that's going to be my protection. That's going to be my safeguard. And I think that it's a conscious risk. And I think she's also seeing how it's also nonsense mm-hmm. in the play. And that's something she's discovering. So Camille says in the play, she says, you realize that the more silent you get, the more the media will just assume you believe he was in the wrong. Um, can you talk about how the media, you know, after a tragedy, places the onus on the victims or, or those closest to the victims to basically prove their victimhood? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially with black men like you. And that was something that I see a lot of like the first picture they pick from like Facebook. It's like, look, he was a thug or look at him. He was not he wasn't a good person. And it's like immediately trying to discredit the person who is killed to kind of like justify this horrible thing that's happened. Like I've seen it. We've all seen it where mm-hmm. someone's shot and it's like, well, they were just arrested last year for a minor <laughs> dis- misdemeanor right. that we're going to blow up. Right. And so I think that we do and we do see often the crying mother on television who's like that's not who my son was that's not who my son was but and it's interesting how even like bringing up facebook how that pulls into it of like i remember when there was that video where like i haven't seen it but it was so hard to not see it of like watching the guy get shot on camera and it was like video i mean facebook just at the time did that thing where it was like autoplay for videos Mm. And I, and I was like, I don't want to see this. Oh yeah. I don't need to see this right. to be like, this is a horrible thing that happened. Right. And it's interesting that the more we get with social media, the more we get 
with visual of having mm-hmm. everything all the time, it's like people need to see these horrendous things happening just to care. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is what the family's fighting against. And that's kind of what June's fighting against of being like, no, he's a human being. That's mm-hmm. all that should matter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the media is very quick too. And it's interesting. Even like the liberal sites will be like, well, but you know, he did do this one thing. He stole a bottle of Advil. So he's the devil. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and I think it's a it's a vicious cycle that we keep seeing over and over and over again. Yeah. Well, basically, it's 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 us raising people of color up on a pedestal too. We're not allowing them to be human beings, victims, especially of violence. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think your play deals so well with that. And is that a subject that's really dear to you that you feel like we're not talking about enough? That we're asking these people who are being murdered to also be squeaky clean and you know, mm-hmm. not be like us, human. Mm-hmm. I Full disclosure, I've stolen a pregnancy test before. <laughs> I was not having sex. <laughs> Why did you steal a pregnancy test? Well, I was raised Pentecostal. <laughs> Just to know <laughs> she could. That doesn't explain it at all. Well, kissing. Like, <laughs> this is not about my, my, my twisted <laughs> upbringing. <laughs> Yes. Um, (laughs) I, yeah, I do. I think there's an issue with wanting anyone to be perfect. And that's Mm -hmm. like the only way there's a scapegoating that's happening. That's annoying. Um, that I personally struggle with of just, I mean, I have, I have never stolen anything in my life. Um, I have what I think is a pretty clean record, but yet I've almost been arrested twice. And so it, it, it's kind of this weird, like one of my fun stories, it's actually in another play, so surprise this happened to me. We write about our own experiences. Um, <laughs> I got arrested for handing a white person a brown paper bag, and I was arrested for drug dealing, <laughs> and the bag was a sandwich. <laughs> so and it, it's just A like, weed sandwich, I'm was, assuming. Was, I just crunched up some cocaine and put it in there. <laughs> I did not do that, Mom, if you hear this. Um <laughs> So, and it's, I mean, I mean, like I was arrested, like I had handcuffs and I was like in a police car oh and then God. like they let me go when they were like, we're racist. Um, <laughs> but it's like, that's the thing is that no one, it's not possible for black people to have a clean record. It's just, that's just the truth of it. We get arrested for nothing. I get followed frequently. I was followed like three days ago in Arkansas for just, I guess, training. I don't know. I don't know. It was two cops in the car. Um, police officers and um (laughs) so it's just that's it's it's an unrealistic expectation it's not even expecting them to be human it's expecting racism to just literally not exist systemically Mm -hmm. and it does it exists systemically there is not a single person of color that has a 100 percent clean record that doesn't have a story of where they were scared and so it's just you're creating an impossible standard and that that's my issue with it and that's my problem with it is that here we are, you know, and it's just how, how, how am I supposed to do them? Do I just stay home? Right. <laughs> like, oh, but then I'm lazy if I stay home. There's no way to win. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, women have this too, right? Like women, it's like, okay, I can, if I don't, you know, it's like the Madonna, yeah. you know, slut complex. Like I want to be fun, but if I sleep with more than one person, I'm a whore. But if I don't sleep with anyone, then I'm a prude. <laughs> and yeah. So it's just, there's no way to win, mm-hmm. which is the problem. In this next clip, Lucy the reporter manages to get inside the Johnson home when all three women are present, and Miriam, the matriarch of the family, breaks her silence as to why she has no desire to speak to the press. Listen, I'm sorry, June, but no 
one is going to care about a black guy who was in and out of jail and who couldn't keep a steady job. And with your mom and your father and sister not wanting to help. It's not that they don't want to help. We don't want your help. They obviously don't want to see justice. I'm beginning to question what you call justice. Okay, let's just... June, this was your brother. By all accounts, he was hardworking. He was a dedicated boyfriend. Is Camille on this bullshit too? Lucy, have you... Have you been getting all of this from Camille? Miriam comes out. She is the only one who will talk to us. Uh, Camille isn't exactly... Lucy. I want to see my brother get justice, probably more than you do, but lying about who he was is wrong. This is how the world works, June. It doesn't matter who a person really was. All that matters is what you say about them. You don't get it, June. Miriam starts to come down the stairs. Audra stays upstairs. Mom, not now. The only black lives that have ever mattered are the good ones. See, we're all bad by nature. But pour some honors, some hard work on it, and all of a sudden it's, oh, you're a good one. And we all know what that means. People don't care about us. They just want to find the good, bad people. The people they can parade around and make a goddamn spectacle out of. The MLKs, the George Washington Carvers, no need, no need for the Malcolm X's and the Amari Barakas. No. They want the good folks. The yes master folks. I knew the moment my son was shot, the kind of people you who'd come looking for his story. And I knew I didn't want to take part in the circus all you people call justice. This isn't justice. It never was. There's no justice for brown and black bodies in this country. I know it. And I told you to, you better wake up before someone wakes you up with a bullet hole in your chest. Miriam grabs a bottle of liquor. She heads back upstairs. Careful, June. You're next. Miriam closes and locks the door behind her. June, that's not... I was... You should go. Like I said, it's really not a good time. I'm just trying to... Go! Well, since we are talking about playwriting, um, do you have any particular rituals that, uh, when it comes to your writing that Mm -hmm. you do? Mm -hmm. I get weird. Um, Love it. So, (laughs) (laughs) with my playwriting... I, I like to write this way. I've recently, with my, as you know, my bazillion jobs, I can't. Um, what I like to do is, I've ne- it's never taken me longer than a week to write a play. Wow. Ever. Um, All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think this interview's done. Okay. <laughs> um, I write plays super fast. Um, I wrote this one in three days. I wrote Well Intentioned in two days. Um, same as these with Abortion Road Trip. So uh, what I do, it's pretty horrible and hilarious, is I like I like to sit on the floor and put my laptop, I get a blanket, and I like, um, I like create like a fort, essentially. It's like my safe space, my protected area, and I like surround myself with snacks, and I just <laughs> stay on the ground, and I just write, and I snack, and I drink. I'm usually drinking when I write because um, of alcoholism, and... Um, <laughs> And so, and I'll just, and I'll just do, and I'll go into like a daze and I won't talk to anybody and I'll be really grouchy. You look, even my cat, I'll be like, no, no time for you. And I'll just like, I'll like shoo her away. Um, and then I'll just churn out a play. And so it's really interesting because I also hate editing. 
And so um, well-intentioned white people was created because I got really frustrated with editing Abortion Road Trip, and I was like, I'm going to write a new play. And then um, well-intentioned white people, I got frustrated with that, and I was like, I'm just going to write a better version of this play and wrote Good Bad People. And then Bernie wanted a new draft, and I was like, nah, I'm going to write another play. So I wrote another play, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I want to work on now. I, and so like, I write these plays very fast. I wrote the play that I actually just wrote recently, I wrote in a night. It took me 12 hours. I just wrote it. Wow. Um, yeah. And it's just, it's like a, it's something just, honestly, to be super honest, this is, I wasn't going to admit this, but it'll happen at random times. Like, I, good, bad people really popped into my head I was like sitting in a theater watching another play that had nothing to do it was like a slapstick comedy and I was sitting there and I was like ah and I was like oh inspiration (laughs) and I like ran home and just wrote good bad people favorite snack drink when you are writing oh I'm so boring okay I love Um, I don't care I love (laughs) snacks depending on the kind of play it's either red wine Mm -hmm. or it's whiskey great um, and also how much time I have because I can last longer on wed rhyme. Oh, Whiskey, sure. like I will write it, but like as you've seen, there's a lot of grammatical errors. <laughs> there's a lot of words missing. There's like moments missing. Because I'll just be like, I'm drunk now. <laughs> I must stop writing. Um, I typically snack on any, like I don't, I don't like chips. I've never liked potato chips. Um but I snack on like fruit usually, um, dry fruit because if it's wet, it gets Ooh. on the keyboard. Um, I don't know what else do I usually snack on. I like this. This is gross. This the seafood, the sea, the seaweed. The, like, oh seaweed. yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. I like to just like crack. Yes, <laughs> I to just attack it. I love that. So it's like seaweed and like red wine. Typey, typey, typey. So heart healthy of you. Um, how does an audience help you in the early stages of development? Oh my God, so much. Um, there are moments that in my head, because I am just dark, are hilarious. And like, there was one moment when we play recently that I heard where I, like the audience just all collectively were like, mm. <laughs> and I was giggling. That's not what you were going for? <laughs> no. And, I was, and the woman sitting next to me, she didn't know I was a playwright. I was laughing and she like looked at me like, what's wrong with this person? <laughs> And I was like, oh, I have to edit this one out. That's not going to work. So just helping me with the jokes. Also, like like you said, I think when you read Good Bad People, it's it's very easy to be drawn to the drama and not see the comedy as much. And so I worry as a playwright, like one of the first things I said to Bernie was, I'm trying to write a dark comedy. Is it funny? Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah. And then I was like, I don't believe you. <laughs> and then hearing it last night, I was giggling throughout the show. And again, I might it might happen again, or I'm giggling and everyone's going, hmm, I don't know about this. <laughs> um, so we'll see. And that they help with that. I think one of the most informative things I learned as a stage manager um, is noticing when an audience member t- moves when they're engaged and when they shift to get re- comfortable again. Oh. And those are the moments I look at the most in the play is like everybody, everyone in the room shifted in their seat. I need to go look at this moment. Like if it's just one or two persons, like when right. I know I get uncomfortable and I fidget, but if it's like, a, like you see like, like watch theater next time you go, it's like a whole, it's like a wave yeah. of shifts. Oh wow. And when that happens to me, it's that's moment needs to be looked at. So yes. do you intentionally sit in the back of the house? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like to sit on the back in the aisle. Um, I'm pretty intense about it. <laughs> I need that aisle seat. <laughs> um, like that on planes too. Man. So. Um, so what are you looking forward to in the coming year? 
the calendar year? Yeah. Or like, (laughs) (laughs) it ends in a month. It does. But yes. So what are you looking forward to? (laughs) Christmas. I'm looking forward to Christmas. I hate New Year's parties. Um, (laughs) No, like what's next for you in 2018? What are you looking forward to? What are you hoping to learn? Oh my God, I don't know. That's Um, okay. It's, it's. I feel like I'm saying this prematurely, and so I hope I'm not jinxing myself. I'll knock on some wood in a second. Um, my life as Rachel the playwright started, it feels like, in July mm. of this year. And then all of this, like, well, I guess technically December 2016, because that was the first time that I felt like I was getting a production that wasn't through someone I knew or through a university or anything. And so I'm still just kind of like, getting my legs like I got lunch, dinner or not dinner I wish I got dinner I got lunch with a friend of mine and she was like are you gonna get an agent and I was like ah <laughs> do I need one um and so I I in 2018 I have hopes like I want at least two more pr- or two productions would be great um but honestly I want to be able to I'm still struggling balancing being production manager, box office manager, business manager, all yeah. the managers, and being a playwright. Mm-hmm. And so for me, 2018, some some stability yeah. would be nice. Um, and being able to do more of this, you know? I love I love traveling. I, I like that I live in Arkansas so that I can, like, chill, you know? It's cheap. And then fly. I mean, the flight's two hours. It's a super easy flight. Yeah. And so I like to just keep traveling for my work. That's one of the things that I learned that I value is travel. Um, so hopefully two more times to do that next year um, at times where I don't have to jump back into tech <laughs> um, as I have to do. Um, Aren't you also partnering with Stage Left Theater in Chicago or is that yes, something that already? Okay, I am. Um, I am the downstage left winter resident. And so I will be back here in January. Oh, very exciting. Fantastic. And then again in March. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we have to go out for whiskey. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, it's and, you know, and things are happening. Like I just found out that there is actually going to be a reading of Good Bad People in January in Florida. Oh, very cool. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so things are things are happening, you know. And yeah. so I just, as long as this momentum keeps being momentum, something that I have talked to a lot of people about is that what's tricky about the arts is you rise, you rise, you rise, and you're like, yeah, I'm. Fa- oh no, no one's mm. contacted me mm-hmm. for years. I'm not famous. <laughs> oh, I'm rising. Oh no. And so I just, I would like to just keep the momentum. I think at this point, um, just because it's been. I mean, this is what I love to do. I love meeting new people. I love connecting with people who I lived inches away from ghost likely yeah. um, <laughs> so uh, yeah I, that's just what i love i love this and so i just want to keep doing it and if 2018 if that's all 2018 brings me is the opportunity to just keep going forward that would make me happy yeah well i love it i i i could talk to you for hours uh <laughs> we love your work um, and we're so excited that you're here with us. Yep. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much for sitting down with us and talking to us. Thank you. Oh my God, this has been so fun. Thank you. So much fun. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Drew, you were great. I felt like I had to say something too. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this glimpse into Rachel's play and life. We also want to push the next project for Jack Lope. It's the world premiere of Franklinland by Lloyd Saab, January 9th through February 17th at Broadway Armory. And our next circle up reading of Perk Up Elkhorn by Isaac Gomez is March 13th at Jack Lope's Frontier Venue. And if you enjoyed listening to Landry and I, please check out our comedy podcast, You Simply Must, where we challenge each other to try something new every week. 
You can find new episodes every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. We'd like to extend a special thanks to the Chicago Inclusion Project, the collaborating dramaturg Heather Holinsky, Edgewater Chamber of Commerce, and you, our audience. Thanks for listening. 